Hello, literacy leaders and champions. Welcome to Literacy Talks, the podcast series from Reading Horizons, dedicated to exploring the ideas, trends, insights, and practical issues that will help us create literacy momentum. Our series host is Stacy Hurst, professor at Southern Utah University and chief academic advisor at Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Joining Stacy are Donnell Pons, a recognized expert in literacy and special education, and Lindsay Kemeny, a Utah-based elementary classroom teacher. Today's episode explores what to do when students struggle. It's a practical, uplifting, and student-centered approach to turning reading difficulties into a pathway for success. If you have struggling students, this is an episode just for you. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Literacy Talks. My name is Stacy Hurst, and I'm your host, and I have the honor of being joined for every episode with Donnell Pons and Lindsay Kemeny. And we take turns choosing what we are going to talk about. So today, um, we're going to turn the time right over to you, Donnell. What are we talking about today? Great. So I was waiting for your, uh, like, kind of a little monologue or something, so I wasn't quite prepared. <laughs> Sorry, I need to step up my monologue game. <laughs> Next episode. Stay tuned. <laughs> that was good. Um, yeah, so this week, you know, every every week we have these topics and they're all, you know, obviously we enjoy them. That's why we are bringing them up and we discuss them. And some of them we were just saying even before we started recording, they're tricky. You know, it might be a newer subject or something that people are kind of, it's controversial or they're thinking about. And then there are episodes that just kind of flow. You know, it's like, who wouldn't love just talking about this? And and so we'll see what this one falls under today. That's what I'm thinking in my head is, what will this be today? And I think what um, what we kind of fell upon is is going back to that subject that keeps coming up as, and it will do, and it should. And that's when teachers are saying, okay, look, <laughs> I'm doing the things, you know, I might be further along than some in my journey of coming to understand the components of the, the base and understanding of the science of reading, the components, and then what I'm doing in my classroom and what that looks like as I teach. And they can be on different places on the journey, but a consistent question that comes up from educators and parents too is, okay, so if I do have a student who's struggling, I'm not really quite sure what I do. You know, some things seem obvious, but others not so much. And there's still a lot of questioning around, okay, so I do, I have these students who are struggling, and I'm really still not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. And this, this is a really good question. It's a legit, legitimate, very good question. So that's going to be kind of the topic we have today. And we'll, we'll obviously go different places in the conversation. But that's going to be the gist of the conversation today is, is talking about this very, very important subject. And we're kind of break it up again in, into our backgrounds, which is so nice to have because I love also hearing from my colleagues here. But Lindsay will take that kind of earlier yeah. section, K through three, and we can also remark on and have experiences too. But it'd be nice to hear, Lindsay, your thoughts on that. And then Stacey, always loving to hear. So new educators entering the classroom and how do you impart to them this very important information when they haven't even had their students yet? And then also maybe Stacey, I'd love to hear from you about observations when your students go out to teach as student teachers um, that's an interesting experience too, because that might be the first time they're having a real world experience with this student struggling and seeing it for the first time, rather than having you have to explain to them what that looks like. And so that'd be really interesting. So let's begin the conversation. We're going to kind of frame it up too, with what we know we should be teaching. 
You know, what are those elements? What does good reading instruction look like? And then those parts of really good reading instruction can often inform us about where a student is struggling and kind of helping your what you know about good instruction to provide the framework for when a student is struggling. How do I know a student is struggling? Because within the framework, I can see these things. So, Lindsay, why don't we talk about, because I love hearing about your classroom and the work that you do in your classroom. What does good reading instruction look like? Oh, well, it's so broad, you know, know. But like when I think about that, you're kind of saying the framework, there's three main things I kind of think about to make sure that I'm, I'm covering in my classroom. Of course, the five pillars of reading, we often call them, right? And that would be phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. And those, you know, are kind of you know, the National Reading Panel kind of centers around those. But then I also think a lot about the simple view of reading, because that kind of shows a little bit more about how all those pillars interact, and also Scarborough's reading rope. So in my classroom, I'm really thinking about, you know, I love like looking at Scarborough's reading rope, and then just thinking about how do I address all those different strands in my classroom. That's excellent, Lindsay, and thank you for giving that that quick rundown of what excellent reading instruction looks like to you. I don't want to hear a definition. I want to hear a teacher tell me. Okay, so I'm, I'm teaching in my classroom, so I love hearing that definition. And then let's talk, let's lean into some of these pieces, Lindsay, and talk about the structured literacy definition, too, that comes from the International Dyslexia Association that kind of breaks down what that instruction, those pieces, you're talking about the five pillars and the simple view of reading. But then also we talk about how it's systematic. The teaching is systematic. It's explicit. And then there's that third element, diagnostic. And that can often be the sticky widget, but it's the really critical piece for the struggling kids in the classroom is the diagnostic piece. So as an educator, Lindsay, in your classroom, tell me how that explicit, the systematic and explicit and diagnostic help you within teaching. Yeah, I love all of that. So it, explicit. We're not going to leave anything to chance. Um, and we're going to, you know, we know that some kids are going to pick up on things, right? But others aren't. So if I just, the whole class, I'm going to explicitly teach like the TH digraph and how we can spell with that and how we can read with that. And I'm just going to be really clear and concise in my directions, right? That includes like for vocabulary, I'm going to use a student-friendly definition, you know? So just explaining things, um, systematic I think a lot of like the routines and procedures we have in our classroom, because if those are really consistent and set, then the students don't have to, like they have more energy um, to think about what they're learning versus like what we're doing in the classroom, right? So it just kind of helps everything run smoothly and they can really focus on the new thing that we're learning. And diagnostic is huge. And especially when you're talking about those ones who are struggling, because that's really is going to come into play because you need to find out where they're struggling. What are they struggling with exactly? And we've got to go in and see where those holes are. And uh, a lot of times with diagnostic, I think of working backwards too, as we try to figure out where the breakdown is happening. So if you have someone in third grade, let's say, and a teacher's like, oh, they're not comprehending. Before we just, let's work on comprehension. First, let's see if the underlying skills are there. Like, um, how is their fluency? Oh, it's not good. Okay, why is the fluency not good? Now let's look at that. And we're going to go, are they accurate? If they're accurate, okay, awesome. Now we're just going to work on fluency. If they're not accurate, let's go down more and say, okay, where's their weakness? How's their, you know, what phonics skills are they missing? Uh, how's their phonemic awareness. Can they blend sounds together? You know, so you're just kind of backtracking. Yeah. 
I love that. And Stacy, you've been listening and I, I hope you have so many things to say because I know I have questions for you if you don't already have things to jump in with. Okay, this is Lindsay, seasoned teacher in a classroom. She's obviously taking the information that she's learning and, and has learned and will continue to learn. And she has a real world classroom to apply it to. So she has scenarios in which for this to make sense. What do you do with those students where this might be the first time they're hearing this information? And in addition, they need to visualize themselves working with students. Yeah, I love that question. I heard this recently. It might have been Adam Grant because I'm kind of a fan of his, but he said knowledge is efficiency. And I think it starts there. And of course, I'm going to say that because I am at the pre-service level, right, right currently. But I have seen that with my own students when they understand the things that Lindsay talked about, like the um, simple view of reading and Scarborough's reading rope and other things like Erie's phases of word recognition, then they know there's a breakdown and what to do to move a student to the next phase, right? So those kind of um, theoretical underpinnings are more important than we think. I would also add that four-part processing model of word recognition. So if, if we're watching a student struggle we can say, okay, is do you think there's an issue with phonological processing or orthographic, you know, mapping? And you know, I think Lindsay also mentioned this too, but you can have students with the same score on a screener, but for totally different reasons, right? So that assessment piece is really important. I do teach my students to start with assessment and then teach. It's been really interesting to observe that. But as a teacher, I feel like I remember being trained a lot in the three queuing system. I could do a miscue analysis. I felt like really proficiently, but honestly, I never 100% understood it or even 50%, right? A lot of it to me seemed, I don't know what the word is, maybe inconsistent or shallow. But now as I learned more and I watch students, whether they're struggling or not, then I can start to inform where my instruction needs to go based on what I'm seeing, based on these really solid foundations of science and learning. So I don't think we can ever undersell that part, right? <laughs> You've got to know. And then the application too, you already talked about explicit instruction. And I was thinking as someone who in my education, especially my early education, everything seemed to come very easy to me. But I still benefited from explicit instruction. I remember occasionally hearing a definition of something that I felt really familiar with or more explicit you know, information about it and just something else in me turned, right? Like, okay, now I know more and I can do better. So I think all of those things come into play, not only knowledge, but time and practice applying it, applying all of that. So Donnell, you say this frequently as we're learning these new things, give ourselves grace. You know, not everyone can listen to a struggling reader and pinpoint exactly where the problem is without a lot of practice and knowledge. And I used to really teach, like, I did not teach explicitly or systematically. And I, the way I was taught in college is that you know, students would just naturally develop into readers as long as they're reading and we're reading to them and reading with them. And that's wrong. You know, some students maybe, but the majority know they're going to need explicit instruction. So, but before what I would do is, I mean, I would give them books 
And then I would kind of expect them, like, if they saw from the picture and they saw that the word was boat because of the picture, then on the next page, when they had the word float, I would kind of, you know, expect them to know that because they had boat, there's the OAO, and they could just kind of figure that out on their own, right? This is a terrible way um, for (laughs) the majority of our students. They're not going to learn how to read. They're not going to discover it on their own, especially those strugglers would discover it. They would have already discovered it, right? And struggling. So it's just a, such a difference now because now I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to teach the Val team OA spells O today and we're going to practice reading and writing words with OA and we're going to read a passage that has a lot of OA words. And it's just completely different than what I used to do years and years ago, you know, where I just didn't even realize. And even like back then, it was just like, I'm giving kids the books, the reading. Uh, we exhausted that reading level. I guess we're going to go to the next reading level. And it really wasn't clear how to move them from level to level. It wasn't clear to me either. And now that I've just learned so much about like what happens when we read, all the different things that happen when we're reading, the things that need to happen that we need to learn. Now, you know, I can look at a struggling student and listen to them read, give them a little phonics survey or something. And I say, aha, the breakdown's happening right here with vowel consonant E. You know, they don't know those or they don't know vowel teams or they don't know digraphs. Whereas before I didn't understand any of that. So I just am so thankful for explicit, systematic, you know, the structured literacy. I just see just such the difference, you know, from before and to now. Yeah. And Lindsay, just just listening to you talking about when I'm with a student and I listen and I hear, I might do a quick, that's that diagnostic piece. We talk about, you know, we talked about some more formal ways that we might see the diagnostic piece. There's also informal ways, right? When we're observing in classroom and teaching. So there are all these ways. We talked about that diagnostic piece being so big and it really is because we're talking about many ways in which we can see or view how a student may be struggling or likewise may have picked it up and they're on their way to move to the next step. That's really interesting. And just quickly before we move on to any any other subject, just want to make sure I talk about those older learners because I did promise I would address just a little bit of that space for the older learners. When Lindsay talked about working backwards, that's oftentimes what I'm having to do because I now have the student who's gone so far through their education that they're well beyond that learning to read stage and they have now cobbled together some really inefficient ways of getting the job done is the best way to describe what I see going on for the students. And that entails both on the reading and the writing piece is they've just kind of cobbled together some skills to get them by. It's not really great. Don't really love it. Comprehension's poor. Try to avoid reading at all costs. Spelling was never good. So that's usually the profile that I'm seeing. And so I am doing that piece of working back. That systematic piece of the structured literacy definition is really important here too, because what it says in there is that you're building upon skills as well, right? You're going in a very systematic way from one skill to the next. And that backing down and finding where your bottom is and then using a systematic method to rebuild for a student who is older, it makes all the difference in the world. And there's just no other way to move forward. Stacey, you had a comment. Yeah. And as you're talking, it's just um, reinforcing what I'm thinking. So my focus in my teaching was early literacy, right? I taught first grade. And then when I became a literacy coach, my focus was K-3, but I worked through K through sixth grade situations. And you know what? I noticed it's so much easier to intervene. That's not to say it's easy always, but it's easier when they're younger for a multitude of reasons 
partly because it's also easier to identify where the breakdown is developmentally and then plug in the hole right then. By the time learners are at the stage you're talking about, Donnell, their profiles, we used to refer to them as Swiss cheese because they do kind of have maybe holes in not such a developmental way, right? They're kind of, I don't want to say all over the place. They could be, but The great thing about what we know is that even once we identify where those holes are, knowing how to prioritize those is easier when you understand how the ability to read develops. Get all the resources discussed during Literacy Talks podcast episodes and stay up to date about webinars and other special events from Reading Horizons. Go to readinghorizons.com slash literacy talks and subscribe to our podcast digest so you're always in the know about everything literacy. So, I mean, this has already been such a great conversation, and and I know that we're pressed for time. I could spend so much more time here, but I also want to address another piece that I hear teachers say, and it's really important. And that is, we've talked here about what good instruction looks like. We've even talked about the fact that more educators are aware, we're even having some taught before they hit classrooms, which is marvelous, not having to learn this in the field. And so, I often hear another statement from some educators, and that is, now that more of us are teaching appropriately and understand how to teach reading... What's the point of even screening for kids who are struggling? What's what's the point of looking for kids who might be struggling and might even fall into a category of, of say, have dyslexia? What's the point if they're all going to be getting this really good structured literacy instruction? What's the point of that? Well, some need more. <laughs> so, you know, those there's always going to be kids that, you know, it's it's harder for them and and they need more intense instruction than the rest of the class. Right. So you're, they're going to need to have some interventions, some tier two, some tier three, some more opportunities to practice the thing, more opportunities practicing in context, writing and reading. Excellent. Lindsay, I couldn't have said that better myself. And that's <laughs> right. I want to lean into. So remember, Lindsay just described right there a really good multi-tiered system of supports, right? So that you can accommodate and, and work with those students who will need extra time to pick up on those skills. Yes, we thankfully, if we're teaching really well in that tier one, we shouldn't have near the numbers of students who need that additional help, right? We do know that too. You can step into a classroom where the instruction in tier one isn't where it should be. And usually those classrooms have a lot of students who are struggling in tiers two and and three and so on. And Stacey, did you have a comment? I didn't want to make sure I wanted to get to you. I do. And just emphasizing because early identification is so important and screeners, that's exactly their reason, right? Their purpose is to identify those. And then Donnell, I know you love this quote. We've shared it probably multiple times on this podcast, but I also find this comforting for educators. And it's by Stanislaus Dehaene. It is simply not true that there are hundreds of ways to learn to read. When it comes to reading, we all have roughly the same brain that imposes the same constraints and the same learning sequence. And so the sooner we identify where the breakdown is in the sequence, the better we can address it and the faster. And I like to think of that quote, like I kind of think of a a train track. So we're all on the same track, but you know, there are differences. So we're not saying every kid is, it's going to happen exactly the same way, right? But they have to go, they have to be on the same track. The same things have to happen. They have to pass the same, you know, I don't know, (laughs) trying this analogy here, but like some of them are on a bullet train and some of them are on a steam engine and some are walking on the track, right? I mean, it's just, you know, 
it's going to take a little more for, for certain students. They arrive at the station at different times. So. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and one comment I, I wanted to be clear here too, because I can wear both hats in this place. I'm, I'm also the instructor of students who have challenges with reading, but I also have children who have dyslexia and a husband who has dyslexia. And one thing I can tell you about identification is it is vital if the student does have dyslexia to know. And remember, dyslexia can be on a continuum, mild, moderate to more severe. It can also have things that co-attend at a higher rate, like ADHD, that can be part of the profile. Also, there's dyscalculia and uh, the math piece that can go with it and dysgraphia, which is the handwriting piece. So when you, the other thing for screening and providing an early understanding for this student, if they do happen to be a student who falls in the category of having dyslexia, that's an important thing to know. Remember, you have the student for a short period of time, but they will have this challenge or difficulty in a classroom in one way or another in which they will learn to manage for a lifetime, right? And so understanding earlier is much better for that student. Had I known what I know now about my son when we figured out that dyslexia was the challenge, I would have been on top of, instead of stumbling over, the co-attending math issue that was there as well, the co-attending dysgraphia, the handwriting issue that was there as well, and so on. But because I wasn't informed, because we never did a proper screening, I stumbled into those things, unfortunately. Now I help other people not stumble but rather be informed and be able to make good choices for their students. So that's another key piece, I think, of why do we screen, even though we're all teaching the good things, is this provides very vital information to learners who are lifelong learners who need this information to be successful. And so that brings me to the point that we've mentioned a few things as resources. Remember, as an educator, to be familiar with a handbook of dyslexia in your state. Sometimes they are called your state name and then handbook on dyslexia, but they can have other names as well. And all of the states um, that currently do have them, I think this last round of legislation, I think we got every last state. There may be one holdout. I'm not going to name names because I hate shaming and naming states because we'll all get there eventually. <laughs> so we just need to nurture and love each other along the path. But um, hopefully we'll eventually be there. But make sure you check with your state as an educator and you're familiar with that handbook. Within that handbook, much of what we've discussed today will be in the handbook. I've seen many from across various states, and they all have in their information about what's good teaching practice. So structured literacy, some definition will be in there with a really good understanding. Likewise, it'll tell you about the diagnostic pieces that are available within your state and the ones that are required and what they look like in your state, because they can vary from state to state, and how you utilize those as screeners as well as part of a screening program, because I've seen that in parts of the states too. They try not to reinvent the wheel too much. And how you screen and go about screening and your requirements are within those handbooks. So they're invaluable and they're online in every state and a really good resource. And the uh, structured literacy, I just want to point out, like that is exactly what students with dyslexia need. Um, and it's also wonderful for everyone. And so sometimes there's this myth where they think, um, oh, I have a student with dyslexia. I have to do something completely different. No, everything that you're learning about with the science of reading, structured literacy, explicit, systematic, diagnostic, all those things are excellent for students with dyslexia. They're probably going to need more. They're going to just need it more intensely. Lindsay, and I'm going to add to that too, because I've heard this phrase that goes along. I've heard some teachers say, oh, that student has dyslexia, so they should be in a different class because I'm not familiar with dyslexia. Every learner is in your classroom and you need to have an understanding of how I work with those students. Um, that's also called differenti differentiated instruction. Stacey, you probably have some thoughts there, I hope. Yeah, right along those lines, um, as you were talking about that and the fact that 
all readers need all the same thing to be happening in the brain. Sometimes I see with older readers who are struggling that we overlook what we think or thought should have been mastered in the early grades, something as simple as phonemic awareness. And I know that we can have um, lots of conversations about this, probably talk about it for a long time, but I will say that I worked with a sixth grader to this day, one of my favorite people, this kid has my heart. Um, And he had so many coping strategies, like if he didn't, he would type out a word, he didn't know what it was, he couldn't read it. And then he'd click image on Google search to see what it was. That's how he learned what that word meant. Those kind of things, really smart kid as far as adapting. But when I started working with him, we started working on phonemic awareness, specifically um, David Kilpatrick's program, the one that he recommends. And I saw the value. I didn't expect that to make as big of a difference as it did. So I guess I would say to any teacher who is working with a student who may be older and struggling, don't be afraid to back up the bus. Go to where you need to start, where that student needs. And that's totally my wheelhouse. And that that book is equipped for reading success that David Kilpatrick recommends within it has the phonological and phonemic awareness at the back of the book. And I would absolutely agree. And I often see if, you know, Stacy, you mentioned it, Lindsay, you've mentioned it too. What are the things that older learners need to learn are the same things that young learners need to learn, right? And in that same order and have the same foundational base. It was really interesting. You've mentioned a student that has your heart, Stacy. I've been doing this for I don't know how long. And I am still amazed that I can have students that can make me just totally reevaluate everything that I do in watching how important it is for them to get these pieces. And I I can be moved still this far into it. So that's the other piece is it's never too late to be moved again and to be to say to yourself, boy, I have a reaffirmation of everything that I'm doing and I'm going to double down and continue to learn and do the best that I can because you'll have students that come into your life that do this all the time for you. And there's currently a gentleman I have, I think I've mentioned him before, he's he's much older learner, and his sound awareness piece, the the breakdown was so profound that he really was in his day-to-day, he speaks no other language than English, in his day-to-day it was even affecting his ability to understand spoken language, that's how, but he doesn't have, in the end when we got to doing it, it was just a real breakdown in phonemic awareness. We've been now working on this for a few weeks, and I tell you, when we get together now, he says, I, you know, I'm, I don't know what this is about, but I think I understand when people are speaking to me better, but, but we're doing reading. I don't know how that works. So we have a little conversation oh, about no. it, but that's amazing. And it's a game changer and a life changer. So it's also never too late to make a difference. I was just going to say, you know, at that stage of the game, uh, really it's the materials that change, not so much what you're doing. Right. Um, we made a game out of those one minute drills, <laughs> one minute activities. And um, he loved it. He did a really good job with that. So making a game out of it, I would use maybe different phonemic awareness curriculum for younger kids, but we often talk about the importance of decodable text for students who need it. And uh, we've had conversations about the need for more decodable text for struggling readers who are older. Again, not to assume that they don't need that. What that looks like, material-wise, will be different because they are older and the text that they are exposed to is typically more complex and sophisticated. So that needs to be reflective of that as well. But um, again, it's the same information that they need. 
And then another thing to think about, because we're like in the lower grades, we're talking a lot about the phonemic awareness and the phonics, the decoding side of things, but also don't neglect teaching those voc- the vocabulary, um, practice questioning with the text, um, retelling text, background knowledge, all those things where you might not see a breakdown right now in first grade, but we want those things strong so that these kids are really rep- like supported when they go to harder texts in the upper grades where they have like strong vocabulary and that oral language piece in first grade is really going to help them down the road as well as currently. So just like remembering that this structured literacy involves all of that. Absolutely. And then Stacy, just to, I, I don't know if we answered it or addressed it. And I promised that we would, maybe there was someone waiting for us to get to the answer. So I want to make sure I double back again, get it, pick it up. That diagnostic piece. And you and I had a conversation very quickly. You could describe even in a classroom, when you enter into a classroom, what it looks like when a teacher really does understand how important the diagnostic piece is, and then how that uh, helps the teacher, informs the teacher in order to adjust instruction for all the learners in the classroom. Maybe just quickly. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that ha- we've already talked about screeners. And just to kind of segue this using Lindsay's comment, just because we don't screen for things like vocabulary or um, background knowledge doesn't mean we can't attend to it and impact it. So then when you're talking more diagnostically, right, um, I think we can't overestimate the need for that. And I feel like a good place to start is actually with a very commonly used screener. And that's doubles or cadence, and not necessarily the um, the overall score. But you can start to get an idea. Oh, did they not do well in the phonemic awareness tasks, or letter naming, or whatever aspect of that assessment that impacted their overall score the most um, is a good place to start with diagnostic. But if you attend to instruction with that diagnostic mindset. And Donnell, you mentioned earlier, I'm teaching pre-service teachers. I have to teach them how to teach the the skills initially, but we always start with assessment. We use the core phonics survey, for example, um, when we're talking about phonics, their assignments, no matter their reading class, are to test students and to make recommendations based on what they've learned so far and what the results of that says. And I feel like if we approach teaching with the idea that assessment is part of teaching, then we're not only going to be able to catch those students sooner, but when we identify what they need, we'll be able to fill the need with our instruction and giving them ample time to practice to automaticity. Did that answer your question? I feel like I meandered a bit. (laughs) A lot of thoughts. You did. And that was really good information. And I'm sure there are educators who are like, okay, that's that's really great to hear. But then also take it one step further for me, Stacey, and what the classroom looks like when the teacher understands that the students might be on different levels and not losing track of those students. Ah, yes. So again, it goes back to assessment, but then in your instruction, making sure that you have the time, that you orchestrate the time to work with those students give them individualized or small group instruction with feedback and ample time to practice whatever it is you're teaching them so that they can clear it off their mental desk space, right? So it becomes automatic and they don't have to maybe focus on it as much. I think it really just comes down to knowing your students individually, not just personally, (laughs) but there are things like that you could learn about their home life and including, did they have a lot of ear infections as a kid that could impact their reading development, but also understand them academically and differentiate based on that. 
And Lindsay, I was just going to say, I, you know, just hearing you describe your students, you know them so well. I mean, that's, that's what you expect to hear when you know that a teacher is, is reaching the different levels and differentiating instruction is the teacher is well aware that not all the students are exactly alike in the classroom and able to, to take that instruction and meet students where they're at, provide either that one on one or small group instruction. And that's built into the way that things are done. Lindsay, just talking to you, familiarizing yourself at the beginning of a, a year with your students. You're doing all of the things that we've talked about. You know, when Stacy said you're you're assessing to make sure you understand exactly where your students are at, all of those things are happening naturally, even though you know Lindsay may not have said each step uh, directly. I, I know that's exactly what's happening within her classroom. And so I'm hoping this discussion today, thank you so much. I mean, we could do this all day. And I'm hoping that if there are uh, specific questions that individuals who are listening will, will feel free to, to reach out and make sure that we address those. And of course, we'll have other subjects and come back around to different subjects when you do uh, give us those questions. We do look at them. And so that's always good to do. But this was has been an excellent conversation. I appreciate it so much. And I know that it isn't just a one and done. This We could have gone on for a long time just on this subject, and there will be other parts of it as well. But just how important this is as we continue to have our discussions about, now that I'm understanding or having a better understanding of the science of reading, what that really looks like in classrooms. Yeah, thank you so much, Janelle, for this conversation. It matters to every single teacher. We all have to differentiate and meet needs of our students. So no matter the setting you're in. I especially like talking about this and feel like it's really important for those struggling older learners too. the confidence that we need to have as teachers to say, we know you need, we can fill the need. And we're all just learning to do that better and better every day. So I really appreciate everybody who's joined us for this conversation and feel free, like Donnell said, to share anything else that you might be thinking about this we would open this up to everyone if we had that option. <laughs> it would be an even bigger conversation that we will have to have another time. But thank you so much again for joining us for this episode of Literacy Talks. And we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening to Literacy Talks, the podcast series for literacy leaders and champions everywhere. Literacy Talks comes to you and your colleagues from Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Visit readinghorizons.com slash literacy talks often for resources, ideas, and great literacy learning conversations. Subscribe to our podcast digest and you'll always be up to date on all things literacy. See you next time. <laughs>